Welcome to FinTech at Haas. Today, I'm joined by Dov Marmor, COO of RailsBank in North America. RailsBank is a global open banking platform based in the UK. Dov has a deep background in FinTech and prior to joining RailsBank, he worked at Green Dot as head of banking as a service and also head of partnerships at Currency Cloud. He's also a FinTech lecturer at Cornell. Great to have you here, Dov. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Michael. If we can start, what is RailsBank? What does it do? What's the problem that it's solving? So RailsBank is a global platform that allows you to prototype, build, and scale any financial use case. So the company is about four years old, started in the UK. And today there's about 140 companies building on the platform, about a million end user accounts. And that's before we just acquired Wirecard's UK assets that you might've read about in the news. And the platform essentially allows you to build accounts, card programs, payment programs. Uh, we've just launched in Singapore and I'm responsible for bringing the business to the US. Um, and in the US, we're gonna add an additional layer of APIs that allows you to tie credit to an account or to a card that allows you to build a credit card as a service offering for US fintechs and brands. You know, Nigel, through your time at Currency Cloud, what's the, the founding story behind RailsBank and how did he see the idea? Sure. So the, uh, the idea behind Currency Cloud, just to give a little background, was basically to create a platform that allowed companies to build their own Western Union competitors. So it was all the global bank accounts, the FX liquidity and the software that allowed companies to build their own cross-border payment services. And they played in the traditional B2B payment space. They powered some of the more famous remittance apps. Uh, and they're still a very large and thriving business that's kind of doing some really special things in that space. So you kind of have step one of, can I build a platform that enables cross-border payment companies to kind of create new and innovative user experiences? After that, you know, Nigel saw the next big problem was that brands, fintechs, uh, traditional retailers, everyone kind of saw the massive success of fintech apps and how much consumers love them. And they just realized, hey, I have massive customer bases of millions of end users. Uh, they'd probably love to take a financial product from me, but it's so complex to actually go out and try to put together all the different pieces of that. So what if a company like RailsBank could kind of do all those integrations, bring in the banks, the regulation, the payment networks, the card processing, kind of all the different components that you need in order to operate a bank account or a debit card or a payment program and just provide it to those companies with a simple set of APIs and almost a, a paint by numbers that says, if you want to create your own financial product, this is how you do it. Uh, so they went along that mission. And you know the other big aha moment that Nigel had was all the banking as a service platforms that exist today have really started as domestic banking platforms, right? So they kind of were grown to serve one market. And Nigel's vision from the start of RailsBank was, a single set of APIs that's country agnostic. So open account, send money, receive money, convert currency, those work the same no matter where you are in the world. And then the concept of Rails is essentially connecting those core APIs to the backend payments and banking infrastructure in each country that we operate. So if you're a global app, you kind of build a product once on the Rails bank platform, and it's the only company that can have that product work across multiple continents with a single product integration. And that becomes really powerful as everything moves more global. What are the challenges with creating this global platform? Companies have started having the domestic approach, but a global platform is a very lofty ambition. So what are some of the challenges with doing that? 
Oh, the challenges are endless, but that's what makes it such a fun, fun project and one that has a really big moat for the next guy that wants to do it. Um, so one is you have differing regulation in kind of each of the different kind of countries that you might operate within. So Singapore, EU, UK, US, they all have different regulators and different rules that you need to follow. So you kind of need to uh, localize the platform in each one of those instances. Um, a lot of them have different infrastructure providers. So you're going to have faster payments in the UK. You'll have ACH in the US. You'll have a different payment network in Singapore. So you actually have to integrate the platform to all of the plumbing that happens in country. You have to design your culture to be global from the top down, but also regional and localized. So kind of how do you manage local teams and kind of make sure that they're working towards a central goal, but also be global platform from the ground up. So we go through a lot of those challenges on a day-by-day -day basis. And, you know, what kind of keeps us grounded is that, you know, core to the RailsBank story is that we are a global platform or a global company. Uh, and we are very customer centric, stability, speed, kind of all those things kind of drive the decisions that we make. Uh, but it's an ever, an ever evolving process in terms of building a global brand that has such so many localized components to it that you see in FinTech. And why have you guys decided now is the right time to launch in the US? And what are some of the challenges compared to other markets that you've entered? Yeah, so if you're going to be a global banking platform, you have to be in the US, right? It's it's the largest market for fintech. So I think that's always been on RailsBank's roadmap. Um, I think we gave a lot of thought into how we were going to enter the US market. And, you know, all the fintech apps today, all the brands, everybody wants to do credit next because it's the most lucrative product that you can make, you know, inside of financial services. And it's also the most complex. Uh, and in order to build a platform that supports that at scale, you kind of need to find the top talent in a bunch of different areas. So payments, product, compliance, risk management, modeling, credit, capital markets. You actually have to bring together a team that has all of those skill sets and mesh those together into a central core platform. So RailsBank's always been an ambitious company. It's always been a global company. Uh, and that seemed like a challenge that was worth taking on and one that we were uniquely positioned to solve. So your first product in the US is what you guys have called credit card as a service. Why did you decide to launch this product first? And what types of customers do you envision having? So we look to solve problems that no one's really solved yet. And we think that credit card as a service is a pretty blue ocean as compared to traditional banking as a service that has a lot of players in the market today. So in the consumer space, I think you see consumer brands, so traditional retailers, uh, just kind of non-fintech-y non type of things where they might not even have an app, right? But essentially, they think that there's a great use case to add a rewards credit card to their portfolio and provide an additional service to their users. Uh, obviously, you have the fintechs, you know, the large enterprise customers all the way down to the seed stage startups that want to provide a unique and differentiated credit product for a specific niche that they serve. And then you have your enterprise tech companies. Right. So your platforms, your apps, kind of anybody that has an existing user base of millions of customers who are asking for an innovative credit solution, whether it be for cash flow smoothing, uh, for rewards, for investing. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different use cases where credit would be a nice product to embed within it. Um, it's all on their mind, but it's just been such a complex thing to actually go build because of the regulation and the and the computation and the credit partnerships. And it's literally the most complex product on the market. 
so being able to figure out all those different components and provide it as a service seemed to us like a really big opportunity that we could solve. In a way, co-branded credit cards are not a particularly new thing. Airlines have had them, but I guess you're just offering that ability to have your own kind of credit experience, but just making that more widely available, not just for the big airlines and really large institutions. Is that a fairer assumption? So I love that question. So basically, I would kind of draw an analogy to something we saw in fintech in the past. So when PayPal first came out, they gave websites the ability to put a wire-framed PayPal checkout page at the end of their website. And Stripe came along and said, hey, developers, here's a series of APIs and you can make payments work any way you want, right? So Uber developed it so that you know every time you get out of a car, a payment goes through to the driver, right? If we just think about all the embedded payment capabilities, that's API-powered embedded finance. So Rails Bank is essentially building that next generation of the co-branded credit card where the experience of the credit card is fully integrated into the app where the customer already comes. Right? So there's this concept of banking isn't something that you do. It's something that now exists in the places that you already go. And that's what becomes really powerful. If you're a tech company or you're a brand, you're constantly focused on how do I keep people within my ecosystem? How do I provide them more services? How do I enrich my, my value proposition to my customer and bring in credit into that ecosystem in whatever way our partner chooses to design it, that's what becomes really exciting because you and I, we probably can't think of the next big thing in credit, right? What we can do is we can empower these really innovative brands and innovative thinkers to solve unique problems for their customers where credit just might be one component. Yeah, that's exactly the way I think about it. It's allowing companies who are closest to the customer be able to offer something unique and different, not just another standard card. And you mentioned a few use cases, smoothing of cash flows and that type of thing. These companies know their customers best and you're putting the tools in their hands. Here's the capabilities, go and build what your customers want. Um, I think that's a really great like, value proposition. In the UK, Rails Bank is regulated itself, but in the US it's decided to partner with banks rather than become a regulated entity itself. Slightly different approaches. Can you talk me through the, the logic behind that? So each country has its own regulatory structure. So the UK and the EU has this concept of an e-money license that can be relatively easily obtained by fintechs that want to enter the banking space. And they have certain limitations and obviously have a lot of oversight but they're more readily available to people that are willing to kind of go through the steps of acquiring that license. So, you know, Rails Bank in the UK, we are fully regulated and we clear directly with the Bank of England. And that provides us a lot of flexibility in terms of the things that we can do. It's also elevated our, our enterprise kind of capabilities because you have to be able to meet a lot of minimum requirements in order to kind of be able to clear with the Bank of England and do things like that. Uh, Singapore has a similar regulatory structure, but in the US, you need to partner with a bank primarily to enter the market and the bank is giving you the capability to provide financial services in the different areas uh, that it's licensed and provides oversight to the programs that we do. So, you know, our strategy for entering the U.S. is just different based on the regulatory infrastructure of the country in which we operate. And that's one of the complexities of being a global brand is that you actually have to localize in each place that you want to go. Yeah, it's not a one size fits all. I know Varo Money got their US license or charter recently and you know it's an an incredibly long process and an expensive process and I think it's not suited for for everyone. What are some of the downsides to going down the partner route? 
I know it's a common debate now, you know, banks and fintechs, do they partner or do they kind of build and do it themselves? Partnering with a bank is almost always the right, the right answer for go to market, right? Because you need to have scale in order to operate a bank. There's a lot of regulatory requirements. There's a lot of things that you kind of need to do uh, to operate a bank. And frankly, banks have, you know, a hundred years plus experience a lot of times in terms of managing the risk and providing the infrastructure and connecting to the networks and all those things. So I think you kind of create the maximum value when you bring specialists in each part of the ecosystem, bring it together and create a single package product for a consumer that's just faster to launch, taps into your economies of scale and just makes it easy to understand and scale over time. Um, but I think, you know, as you get large enough, getting your own banking license and kind of going down the regulated path does provide you a lot more flexibility. It's just kind of one less party to, to check in with as you decide what the next step in your evolution looks like. Um, but it's a decision that every company makes at some point, right? It's just typically not the first step as you go into a market. Can you tell me a bit about the the infrastructure un underlying some of the popular fintech apps? You know, I think people don't always appreciate what goes on beneath the, the consumer level app that they see. I'm sure there's a lot of technology and infrastructure underneath it. Yeah, so that's what's really cool about banking as a service, brokerage as a service, platform as a service, whatever, whatever folks decide to call it on any given day. But it essentially provides a toolkit of APIs that connect to an external system that already manages that core aspect of the financial architecture. So, you know, pick your favorite fintech app, there's a broker-dealer BAS platform that's kind of powering their stock brokerage and ETF piece. There's a checking BAS platform that manages their debit card and their FDIC-insured accounts and those pieces. There might be a savings platform that's managing their high-interest savings. There might be an insurance BAS platform that's providing insurance into the account. So while to you and me, it looks like a single user experience that has multiple financial products kind of built into a single app. In reality, that app is actually an amalgamation of multiple different backends. And one of the interesting things that we've learned lately is that there's there's a new use case in the market of Ledger as a service. So essentially a top level record of truth that tracks real time money movement and exchange of value between those different platforms and gives a real time reconciled view to the fintech of everything that's happening in the background. So it's kind of interesting that with every innovation in fintech, so all the BAS platforms made it so much faster to bring a product to market and scale it, it's kind of led to the next need of the market, which is how do I reconcile all that? And now there, that's an opportunity that, that Rails Bank is looking at as well in terms of the next stage of our evolution. The ledger is obviously probably one of the most important things that a fintech would have. It's the system of record of whose money is what and it keeps a track of that. Do you think that's something that should be outsourced? Someone I had recently on the podcast had a problem with their ledger provider over the weekend and the company they had outsourced to decided not to support them over the weekend because they wanted a work-life balance. And the, the guy was like, I, I accept that, but it's the ledger, it's so important. So do you think that's something that uh, companies will tend to outsource or they should look to build it in-house? In Owning your own ledger gives you a certain degree of flexibility, right? You are your own your own source of truth, and it gives you the ability to kind of piece together best in breed suppliers that you choose to connect into that central ledger, right? If you kind of go down a more traditional path, which is a fully baked solution, you're kind of stuck with whatever providers are already integrated into the ledger, the processor that you chose. So there's a 
there's a level of flexibility that comes with having your own ledger and it kind of keeps you a little bit more control of your own destiny. On the flip side, you obviously have to have a very strong ledger and very sophisticated calculation tools, immutable databases, things like that, that ensure that the ledger is always staying in sync. And what happens if one of the suppliers goes out? How do you reconcile after that? So there's a lot of complex technology and and data feeds and integrations that kind of need to feed into that capability. But if someone has that as a core competency, you know, Rails Bank has built its own ledger and, uh, and it is a competitive advantage for us globally. You mentioned you guys are thinking of this as a you know potential other solution or product down down the line. Um, what else do you think is in store for Rails Bank USA? Oh, there's just so much. I mean, look, we look at ourselves as a global platform for prototyping, building, and scaling any financial use case, right? So now we do payments, banking, debit, credit soon, uh, insurance, brokerage, compliance, ledger. As fintech grows and expands, there's just so many different areas of financial services that we can expand the platform capabilities into. You know, that's from a vertical perspective. From a horizontal perspective, there's also just the different geographies that we want to expand the platform into. So remember what I was saying earlier is our APIs are country agnostic. So one of the questions is, do our customers see more value from entering new countries or from adding new verticals into the platform? And, you know, like any good tech company, we listen to the customers and we let them kind of drive our decisions on what to do next. I think sometimes it can be very sexy to go into you know, different geographies, but a lot of the time, if you think about where the value of spending that investment is, I think a lot of the time it's in staying in your own geography because, as you say, it's very localized, but expanding the product. So going horizontal rather than expanding to a completely new new area because of the regulation involved. And I guess it's kind of like what you guys were saying, that being a global platform allows them actually to expand globally very easily with Rails Bank because they don't have to worry about the different regulations and the different nuances of each jurisdiction. Yep. We can grow on two different tangents. We can add more products or we can add more geographies and we can strike a balance between the two. I want to get your thoughts on lending as a service or balance sheet as a service, whatever people want to call it. Banks essentially levering their balance sheets to provide capital as a service through an API. What are your thoughts on that? As a function of the time that we're in right now, I think it's going to become more and more prevalent. So essentially, no one makes any money on deposits anymore. Interest rates are at zero, right? So you have all the treasury groups of the banks and the asset managers, they're all looking for yield. They, they need to deploy their assets in a way that they can make money. And they're having to start look at other business models to kind of invest and deploy capital and make that yield. Um, so I do think you're going to see banks more and more moving into the space. And, you know, we're already seeing some some pioneers kind of head into it. Um, banks are traditionally very conservative, so it takes them a little bit of time to kind of think through the risks and how to manage those risks and kind of how to prepare the regulators and kind of all the other pieces. But I think in the future, you're going to see that banking is not going to be done at traditional banks anymore. It's actually going to meet the customers where they already are. And the banks that are sort of pioneering that way are going to be the ones that lead it at the end of the day. And they would just essentially provide the back end whenever someone goes to their fintech app or, or whatever product they have, a bank will just eventually end up piping into that to provide the capital, say, for a credit card or a lending product at the, at the point of sale rather than you go into a bank specifically. Banks are just good at certain things, right? They're very good at underwriting risk, right? Uh, I think that there's some 
I forget who said it, but it's, you know, it's very easy to lend money. It's really hard to get it back. <laughs> right? so, so banks know how to do that. And they're, and, you know, there's a lot of hubris that kind of goes into fintechs who think that they can do it better. Uh, because in reality, like banking has been around for a very long time and it was built upon lending. And that is a core competency of banks. So I think, you know, we as a fintech, we're looking to build deep, longstanding partnerships with our banking partners and realize that they do bring unique value to the table and things that that we're better off kind of focusing on what we're incredible at, which is connecting traditional financial services into the API economy and growing those programs and kind of providing clear, transparent and scalable kind of pricing models, you know, really investing in the fintechs that build on our platform but also being tremendous partners to the banks on the back end and giving them new avenues to connecting with consumers where, you know, having a branch on the corner doesn't really work anymore. Just to dive a little bit deeper into that. So I completely agree that banks have a core competency in credit risk analysis. They have a very set model, their underwriting models, and that doesn't cater as well to people that don't have as deeper credit file. There are a lot of people that are locked out of traditional borrowing from banks because they don't have the necessary like documents. They don't have a, a deep file. And you know, me as an example, when I came to the US, I found it very difficult to borrow money because I didn't have any history here. So I, I think there's a, there's a market where fintechs can bridge that gap and help banks lend to those consumers that they're not necessarily able to because I think they have a very rigid set who they're marketed towards basically you know they're mass market but they don't get every kind of use case I think you're absolutely right so like banks are banks are good at 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 the box that they play in and then you're also finding like I said bank fintech partnerships make sense from a lot of angles for the areas of risk that they're not comfortable taking like for example you know providing credit to folks that don't have the traditional FICO score areas of that there's lots of fintechs that are kind of coming up in this space uh, that are providing alternative underwriting models, alternative underwriting criteria that in oftentimes actually perform better than the underwriting models of the banks. Um, but at the end of the day, the bank is still a partner in that. The bank is still typically the lender of record. They always have a piece in the program. And I just think it's, you kind of just need to be dynamic and partnership oriented and really kind of explain the problems that you're trying to solve. Uh, but the bank is always a partner in that value chain as far as I'm concerned. No, I, I completely agree. Within the incumbent banks, do you see some of them going down different paths? Some are very fintech friendly and looking to partner. Some, I think, are less willing to adapt to the times, let's say. Um, have you kind of noticed that, you know, some, some banks have a more open culture and some don't? And you think that's something that needs to change in some banks? Of course. Yeah. I mean, like, if you're moving into fintech, there's like the go-to list of banks based on exactly the product you want to build. They've established their footing in that space. You know, there's the big ones that have kind of built up the infrastructures to kind of manage multiple programs. And then there are new ones that are just getting into the space for the first time. And for every fintech, that just becomes a decision on who's the right partner for them and for their business model. Um, I think, you know, you're seeing that really in the smaller bank space, the the really largest banks and money center banks, they're fine, right? They have capital markets groups and they have treasury groups and they have, you know, they have, they have so many different things going on. Uh, I think it's really in that middle tier of banks. So your super regionals and kind of below that, that are kind of feeling the squeeze. Um, the Macy's of the banking world, if you will, they're kind of like in the middle is not really the place you ever want to be. Uh, and I think soon we're going to start to see those banks kind of moving over and partnering more with fintechs. And we're definitely starting to see that in, in the industry. So something that happens slowly and it happens over time. Um, but I think the banks are looking for guidance as well. And that's something that we can help provide. 
I think it's a really interesting opportunity for those mid-tier banks. They don't have the brand or you know the distribution to reach customers that aren't in their immediate vicinity, but by offering up APIs and trying to partner with fintechs, you know, they can really grow their deposit base, their lending and their customer base through these partnerships. And I think to me, that seems like one of the only ways they're really going to accelerate their growth and start to challenge and, you know, move up the the pecking order, so to speak, in, in terms of banks. But like you say, the large banks, they don't really need to do that as much. Everyone has heard of Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, you know, for better or worse. Bingo. Yep, exactly. Spot on. The space that you guys operate in domestically is quite competitive. There's a, f- a few other companies doing maybe not exactly credit cards as a service, but banking as a service generally. What do you admire most about your competitors? Nothing. <laughs> uh, you know, I like Like, I, I think we're all kind of trailblazing in a space that, that nobody has done before. So I absolutely admire the fact that they had the drive and the chutzpah, as my mom would say, to kind of go into uncharted territory and just figure it out. You know, I'm also thankful to them that like it's always good when someone else goes first because you can kind of learn from a lot of the groundwork that they did. And it's just one step easier to kind of be next into market. And you can also, you know, I see the mistakes and see what you don't think is optimized and you can kind of build from there. I think it's always dangerous to enter a market as truly the first one, right? Because you're not sure if there is demand. Uh, but those other guys have proven that there is a demand for this. And, you know, just announcing that we were coming to the U.S. and launching this credit card as a service platform, you know, generated a tremendous amount of interest. So, you know, the demand side of the equation, I don't think is the problem. Um, it's just a really complex platform to actually build and to do it at scale. Um, so that's, that's the fun part of the project. And that's the part that kind of creates a large barrier to entry for the next person that's coming in behind you. Just on that, the complication of creating this sort of platform, you've obviously got a very deep experience in, in fintech from your time at Green Dot and, and currency cloud. How important do you think that is for companies operating in your space to have that depth of experience? It's monumentally important. When you look for bank sponsors and you look for partners and kind of all the downstream integrations that you need to build in order to create a platform, they're taking a risk on you too, right? And it's a larger risk when it's somebody that's never done it before. They just have a good idea, but they don't have the relationships and they don't have the experience and they haven't kind of made the mistakes before. Um, so from, you know, banks are essentially calculators of risk, right? So having an experienced team has been a large leg up for us. And it's also that the areas of the platform that I don't know, I hire really smart people that can tell me what to do and not the other way around. And I think, you know, the longer I spend in this industry, the easier the job becomes just because you have the right networks and you kind of know the right places to go when you don't have the answer. And that's a lot more efficient than trying to figure it out on your own from the ground up. From your experience, what, what lessons have you learned along the way that you're bringing to Rails Bank? The big one is it's okay not to have the answers. And the, the biggest thing is actually to work with people that are smarter than you and that complement your skill sets in a lot of different ways and kind of know where to go to get the answers and be open and transparent and partnership oriented. And that kind of creates really strong cultures and teams kind of as you grow. Uh, 
It's also been really important to kind of understand what the risks are in a given business and how to mitigate those risks and how to speak confidently about, you know, how we address each one of the things that a bank is going to be thinking about when we approach a partnership conversation. Uh, it's really important to understand the existing market and some of the gaps that exist. Uh, and then it's also just really important to listen, right? I think when I was a uh, when I was younger and just kind of first entering this career, I'll kind of go into companies and say, I know how to solve your problems. Now it's a very different conversation, which starts with what are, what are your problems? This is the interesting thing we're doing over here. Does it apply? Does it not? If it doesn't, what are the other things you're thinking about? So those types of more consultative relationships and, and value building that occurs over the long term, I think that's what differentiates people that have kind of been in this space for a while and kind of the the new cowboys kind of entering for, for the first time. I'm in a startup sales class and we're learning about that approach of listening to what customers' problems are, trying to ask exploratory questions around that. Why is it a problem? How much time do you spend on it? I think some people have an image of salespeople as going in, I've got the best solution for your problem. I know, I know what it is and not listening, basically. It makes far more sense to try and understand first rather than go in and push your solution onto someone. Yeah, you can tell I have a long background in sales and, you know, now seeing it from the other side, um, I would say that bad salespeople are polluting LinkedIn and the different networking platforms where, you know, you kind of get a message that, hey, I'd love to join your network, which is directly followed by a three paragraph pitch about how they can solve the cure to cancer and kind of everything else like that. You know, I think uh, it's just giving the others a bad name, which are folks that are adding value, they're contributing to the platform, they're sharing ideas, they're sharing learnings, they're giving back. And I think, you know, as you're in this longer and longer, the more you give back and the more you contribute, the more it's going to come full circle. But you can't just kind of go into each scenario saying, what can you do for me and how can I hit my sales quota? It doesn't work. And it's it's one of the more frustrating things that have happened with like the simplicity of social networking platforms is it's so easy to connect with someone that people just abuse it and it waters down the experience. I, I completely agree with that. We've touched on culture a few times and you mentioned obviously Rails Bank is a global company. Do you find it has microcosms of culture per country that it's in or is there more of a top-down culture and how do you guys think about implementing that culture on such a global scale? It's funny that you bring it up now. We're actually just going through those kind of 10 guiding principles that guide everything that we do as a company. Um, and actually we do a lot of work in our recruiting process Everybody who joins RailsBank, like one of the top things on their list of why they want to join is that they want to be part of something global. Like they've done the domestic thing and global to them is top of the list of what they want to do next professionally. When you hire really good people and when you hire people that kind of have that, we don't hire assholes, if you will, right? And any time that we've done that, we very quickly kind of corrected course. Um, but everybody in the company wants to learn from other cultures. They want to be part of a global brand. We celebrate each other's differences, you know, and I think, you know, over time that makes a really rich culture and a rich work experience. And then each one of us is the, the regional leads, right? So myself in North America, I have to create my own culture uh, within the U.S., which is really just making sure that we're all sharing a common vision and that we have, you know, professional training and development. We understand people's goals and how they want to integrate with the larger global brand. So there's a lot of different things that kind of go into building a global culture. Uh, we definitely don't have all the answers day one, but I think it starts with hiring people that you know are a good personality and cultural fit with the rest of the organization. 
I think, as you alluded to, it's very important when someone doesn't fit, even if they're a superstar in, in their respective field, that can be more detrimental to the team to have them. So you need to hire, but also fire very quickly. And it shouldn't be a surprise when people leave if they just don't fit with the culture. I know sometimes it's a very hard decision to make though, if they're a significant contributor, but they don't fit the, the mold of what you're trying to build in terms of culture. That's that's spot on. I think, you know, one one bad type of experience, uh, one person that's con- continuously putting others down or talking over others, like it just kind of changes the whole dynamic. Uh, and it's something, you know, I think Ashton Kutcher put it best, hire slow, fire fast. Yeah, I like that. You mentioned Wirecard earlier. You guys have taken on some of the assets. What have you guys learned about seeing that experience unfold in Europe? And why did you decide to bring on those assets to, to Rails Bank? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously it was very unfortunate and it was a bit of a, a stain on the fintech community in general. Uh, you know, and you can't let a few bad apples kind of ruin the whole story of everything that fintech has done for the world. Um, and then, you know, Wirecard, you know, some bad things were done by a few people at the top, but that didn't necessarily mean that you had an entire company of bad people. Right. You actually have a lot of really talented people, passionate people, good technology, great customers, all of whom are at a point of crisis. And Rails Bank was uniquely positioned to kind of come in and help the brands that were built on Wirecard, help the employees that were built on Wirecard, you know, get some interesting tech uh, in the transaction. So all for all those reasons, you know, I think it made a lot of strategic sense for us to uh, to enter into that deal. And, you know, right now we're going through the process of you know, integrating their their assets into our company. And, you know, that's a massive, massive undertaking, um, but one that we think is just going to yield dividends in the long term. I saw after the fact, Nigel was calling for more regulatory oversight of companies that don't play directly in the regulated space, but they're tangential, but they have a web of other, you know, fintechs they support that they can become a problem. I assume you agree with more regulation or do you think there's a different approach to take? Obviously, there was a gap, right? Someone missed something for $2 billion to go missing. So obviously, there was a gap there. Um, And I think regulation is important. It protects companies. It protects consumers. But I'm also a big fan of smart regulation. We spend just so much time working on disclosures and, and, you know, the Apple 40-page agreement that no one's ever read. You, know, you just think about all that. That's all a result of of regulation that had good intention, but didn't necessarily have great application. So I think there's there's also a point of yes, more regulation. Uh, yes, we need to keep people safe, but also needs to be applied in a way that actually protects consumers at the at the end of the day and doesn't just create more legal work. I think that's definitely a different approach I've noticed between the U.S. and the U.K. Is the focus of regulation. It's very consumer friendly in the UK and very hands off and more market driven in the US. Pretty pretty consumer heavy in the US. We have a, we have a lot of rules to follow. Um, it just kind of I sometimes just wonder, you know, if it's applied in the best ways, right? Versus like today we have like big data and access to all these different things where we can have real time visibility into what people are doing. You know, to me that that's applications of other technologies and regulation that could potentially just change the game and keeping consumers safe and having like real-time visibility into the next wire card. And in Europe, the open banking movement where Railsbank started is very all-encompassing. You know, it's it's very vibrant, but in the US, 
they're coming up with a more market-driven approach. What do you think the US can learn from what's going on in Europe with open banking? Do you think there should be more regulation to force banks to open up APIs in the US? I feel like it's pretty open, right? With a plat integration, you can really kind of get access to ACH pull and kind of all those different pieces. So I've never actually felt like there was a huge hindrance. So when we issue debit programs or credit programs, we partner with the bank and the bank provides a lot of that regulatory oversight to kind of make things happen. I think in the US, we just, we go about it a different way. Um, and we do increase the barrier to entry for companies that want to enter the space. But the barriers to entry are still way lower than they were five or 10 years ago. You know, it used to cost you 20 million, now it costs you two, right? But the truth is if you can't raise $2 million and if you can't build the right team in order to do that, then it's probably really pretty risky to let you enter the banking space anyway, right? Because you have to have a certain level of professionalism and sophistication in order for you to be trusted kind of managing someone else's money. Right. So I think kind of those cost and time to market and complexity hurdles are important because it's the same reason that it's not easy to become a doctor. And the same thing in banking, like getting into fintech is like going to med school. It's not easy. Right. But if you do it right, then it's a lot easier than it used to be. How do you see the fintech industry in general developing over the next five years? Do you, do you think we're going to see more and more companies embedding different financial products into their own stack? It seems to be the biggest trend. I would wonder if you, you agree or what other trends that you also find interesting. Yeah, like I think in the future, we're going to bank with, with the brands that we love and, and not with traditional banks. Um, I think that those two worlds will kind of intertwine more and more and more. Right. So uh, I do think that's kind of on the horizon. I think you'll see a lot of consolidation. You know, you have tons of consumer apps out in the market today. They all can survive. Right. So you'll kind of see the bigger ones eat the smaller ones. You kind of see that come together. Uh, but then I'm sure we're going to kind of see a whole new wave of financial services innovation that kind of comes in a variety of different industries and, you know, makes that better. So trying to be a futurist five years out in fintech is probably a bit of a dangerous exercise because Honestly, who knows? But the next year or two is really exciting to kind of watch on the horizon. If we end up banking with brands that we we know and love, what happens to Goldman Sachs, Citibank? They're behind them. You got Goldman Sachs behind the Apple card, Green Dot behind the cash. I mean, there's there's traditional banks that are the back end of those brands, right? And I think the most innovative ones are the ones that are partnering with the brands and building financial services together just realizing that the brands are a better path to market because they have more scale. They have that fanatical customer base, right? So that's happening, right? It's already happened. Uh, the difference is like in the co-brand world, you know, how often do I use my airline credit card? It's kind of the secondary card in my wallet. But if the, if I have a credit card from that brand that I truly love, where I manage all of my different finances and it connects to all the other aspects of my life, I just think it becomes far more scalable in terms of the long term of what it can do. Goldman Sachs, I think, completely gets it. They're building a lot of infrastructure to partner with Walmart, with Amazon, with Apple. I don't see that from all of the big banks. So I think some of them are really going get to the, get the message, but it, it'll be too late. They have really robust businesses, right? You kind of go to a guy that runs a $600 million P&L in lending and it's like, oh, I'm good. Right. I, I think that at, at the top of those biggest brands, they have so much business that like does does fintech's not going to move the needle in your first year. It takes a while to kind of build and grow those programs to the point that they're impactful. Right. And I think you kind of see fintechs and, and Goldman really has just kind of had a, a bit more of a, a visionary perspective in terms of you know long term investment in this ecosystem and seeing where it goes. 
I saw recently that Jamie Diamond had said at a conference in the US that kind of like a Mario Draghi moment, like I'm willing to spend whatever it takes to keep the business going, whether that's another $2 billion in terms of developing, maybe not competing with directly with fintechs, but I thought that was an interesting statement and obviously waiting to see what their UK bank offering looks like. They, you know, they failed last time. I wonder how it's going to be different this time. You're talking about Finn? It just became like, it could have been the coolest app ever, right? It just, nobody was looking to them. Like it, what they weren't solving a problem. No one said, hey, I really wish JP Morgan offered a, a FinTech bank, right? Versus like somebody like a Stash or a Wealthfront or an Apple. I'm sure a lot of consumers have said, oh, if they put a bank account there, I for sure use it, right? So it's it was just a, you just needed to understand the customer on a bit of a deeper level that millennials are much more lifestyle brand focused and they're much more about like, what does my bank say about me? Uh, that's why you kind of have the cool metal debit cards and you kind of have all the little flashy tools and features because people view it as an extension of themselves. And, you know, after 2008, the banks just got a bad reputation and people don't want, you know, don't want to have that association as part of their personal lifestyle brand. Yeah. And, I would assume that they're going to do something different this time. But if they just go to launch another standard challenger bank, I just think it's not going to get much take up. And maybe they're better off spending that money by Monzo. We're we at Rails Bank. I mean, we're more than happy to sit in the background. You you never have to see our brand on a, on a Rails Bank kind of product, right? Um, but, you know, we're a B2B platform, right? That our business is making sure that the businesses know they can build on us, but it's their brand when they take it to the consumer. Switching more, just before we kind of close out on on the personal side, what do you do to manage your time effectively and make sure you're as productive as you can be? Do you have any tools that you use, tips, tricks you can share? Probably the wrong person to ask. My my work life balance has not been exactly structured lately. Um, but you know, for me, because I live in LA and work with a London team, so I like to actually wake up really early and get my work done before the kids wake up. Uh, and then I always try to make sure to take three hours off at least, you know, in the afternoon to kind of spend time with my family and kind of do some fun stuff. And then usually I'll hop back on at night. Uh, and I try, you know, not to work on the weekends. So I try to strike a good work-life balance and make sure that I'm dedicating equal amounts of time to both. Um, but I also think, you know, work-life balance isn't as important if you love what you're doing for work. So I feel really challenged and really engaged and, you know, my work family is my second family and, because we've kind of invested so much in that culture, uh, it feels good, but it's definitely important to take time for your health, for your sanity, for your personal life, and kind of invest in that just as much as you do in your business life. What are some of the things that you regularly read or watch or listen to, whether that's you know podcasts, newsletters? Yeah, so I listen to, uh, I listen to How I Built This. That's one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, really just kind of love hearing the stories of those founders and kind of the, the experiences they went through building their startups. Uh, I love another podcast called the Dealmakers Podcast Show by Alejandro Cremades. It's kind of about raising money and kind of the, the early things that kind of founders kind of go through on, on their journey to, to raising financing and ex exiting their companies. Alejandro is actually a good friend. Um, and then in terms of like from the book world, I'm just an audible junkie. Uh, so I used to drive about an hour a day each way to work. So I think I plowed through something like close to 40 books last year. Uh, love biographies, uh, kind of hearing the stories of people people that kind of went before me. Uh, so those are some of the things I'm into. I find with audiobooks, I just retain the information less than if I'm sat physically reading a book. I don't know if you've found 
something similar? You have to pick the right format. So I like biographies because they read like a storybook mm -hmm. and I like kind of fiction. But if it's something where I actually have to sit there and absorb like a management book or, uh, or an accounting book or kind of something that's more instructional in nature, I don't find audiobooks are the best tool for that, at least not for me. Yeah, that's fair. And do you have a book to recommend? Like what's your, your favorite book you've read recently? My favorite that I've read recently is called Origins uh, by Dan Brown. It, I just couldn't put it down for days. Uh, and then in the nonfiction space, uh, there's a, a book called Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow. And it's about all of the, uh, the Me Too scandals that happen around Hollywood. It's just unbelievable. Like what a crazy story. Uh, really kind of makes you think about you know, corporate culture these days. And it's kind of a, in massive need for a bit of a change. Definitely. I'll uh, have to give those two a look. Last question. So I'm always looking for new guests to have on the podcast. Do you have anyone in mind that you think would make a good guest from the fintech world that you know, whether that's entrepreneur, investor, or just thought leaders in general? Yeah. Uh, well, one that I mentioned before, I would, I would have Alejandro Cremades. He kind of runs Panthera Advisors. He's a, a serial founder that kind of grew a bunch of different companies and now supports the startup community. I think he's a really interesting speaker and someone that you'd really enjoy hearing from. Um, I think in the, in the fintech space, you know, uh, gosh, there's just so many, uh, but Andy Raycliffe, uh, of Wealthfront, uh, Brandon Krieg of Stash, uh, there, there, there's just a whole bunch kind of too much to, to go through, but kind of pick your biggest, most attractive and, and exciting fintech apps. And that's kind of who I'd bring on the show to talk through it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to reach out to a few of those companies. So hopefully we can get them on the show eventually. Thank you very much for your time. It's been really interesting chatting, hearing more about your story, what Rails Bank is doing. I think the vision of a global platform is very, very compelling in the world we operate in now. It's not very domestic. Everything is, is global. So yeah, love what you guys are doing. I really appreciate your time. I've been super impressed by your, by your podcast skills and kind of what you've built from the ground up. So well done and uh, keep it up. And I look forward to listening to more of them. I really appreciate that. Thanks very much. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Cheers.